Welcome to Roots Media's The Philosophy of Now podcast. Our guest today is a consciousness researcher, a neuropsychologist, and a system theorist. He is the director of the Center for Consciousness Studies, the author of over 200 articles, chapters, and books on consciousness and the brain, the founder and the former president of the International Society for Consciousness Studies where he also received the Lifetime Achievement Award for his advancements in consciousness studies. With his wide range of experience, study, and research in the realm of the human mind, its complexity, and especially consciousness, he has been the editor for journals like Consciousness Ideas and Research for the 21st Century and the Journal of Consciousness Evolution. Our guest today has written inspiring books like The Radiance of Being, Consciousness Explained Better, and Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster. Our guest today is one of the most well-known consciousness theorists and researchers. Today, we hope he can give us his explanation and his insight into the field of consciousness, how the human mind works, and how understanding it can help us become better people. We have with us the one and only Dr. Alan Combs. Hi, how are you? All right, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for taking out your time to speak with us today. It's truly an sure. honor. To start things off, I really wanted to know what led you into studying consciousness. As someone who's so well-respected and reputed in the field of consciousness research and neuropsychology, what led you into looking into this world of consciousness and the study of it and the analysis of it? Was it a trigger was there a single moment that you know pushed you into the inquiry of this whole world of consciousness that we live in or you know was it spiritual was it something else um would love to know what led you to this journey into studying and inquiry let me think about the best way to answer that um you know well i have uh long history of interest in philosophy Uh and uh, long ago began to develop an interest in uh, Asian philosophy, especially Indian, uh, Chinese as well, I guess, but mostly Indian. Uh, And that led me, and I was also very interested in personal growth and transformation. I come from a long history of experience in what used to be called humanistic psychology. You don't see that term used much anymore, but uh, back in the 70s, humanistic psychology was, uh, and even the 60s, was known as the third force, uh, behaviorism being uh, one major school of psychology and psychoanalysis, um, essentially the second, and be, and humanistic psychology came along as what was often called the third force. Uh, this was way back in the 70s, eh, 60s even. And out of that, uh, there was a movement in the, especially in California, Bay Area called the Human Potentials Movement. Okay. 
human potentials movement uh, was all about uh, encounter groups, we used to call them, various kinds of growth groups, uh, personal development, personal transformation. Uh, all of that bordered on consciousness. It all had something to do with consciousness. Uh, and I was involved with a lot of it and got uh, eventually got more and more interested in consciousness itself uh, from a philosophical point of view and from a psychologist point of view. I had a background in Jungian, Carl Jung, Jungian psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was fascinated in uh, back in the 70s. There were a few leaders in the area, Charles Tart, for example, who's still alive and you probably could interview. Okay. Uh, Charles Tart had written a book called States of Consciousness, something like that. I could look it up, but it wouldn't be hard to find. Uh, he's still around. He's officially retired, but he was a faculty member at Berkeley for years and years. Okay. Uh, and I became fascinated with uh, his uh, theory of consciousness, structures of consciousness, was, which was originally based in systems theory. Mm -hmm. uh, old-fashioned systems theory, which was uh, pretty much about boxes and arrows. <laughs> a standard systems theory model would show you how a factory worked, uh, how resources came in, where they moved in the factory, how they went out. Uh, it's become much more sophisticated since then. Uh, dynamical systems theory is a pretty so sophisticated mathematical area, and it eventually became more and more associated with uh, nowadays what they call complexity, complexity theory. Mm -hmm. uh, chaos theory eventually became complexity theory. So I was in, involved and interested in all that uh, with uh, interest on the side in uh, Indian thought and uh, models of consciousness, and especially states of consciousness. Uh -huh. which was a big interest of uh, William James, uh, in my opinion, the greatest, at least American psychologist. And uh, uh -huh. his work was uh, pretty much eclipsed in the early 20th century by behaviorism and reductionistic thinking, but yeah. uh, has returned. And so those were my interests, and I got more and more involved with it. Um, so I eventually found myself in the company of, uh, fellow psychologists and philosophers, uh, and systems theorists who were interested in aspects, uh, many of them interested in aspects of consciousness, uh, that weren't really very acceptable by the, um, uh, most conservative uh, groups, the more uh, reductionistic scientific groups. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a society, you can look it up, uh, called, I believe it's called the Society for um, Scientific Study of Consciousness. Okay. Something very similar to that. It won't be hard to find them. They have a good website. They have conferences every year. Okay. Um, and they put up with nothing that isn't really traditional science, 
even reductionistic science, for example, uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Stuart Hammeroff, uh, who's the leading guy out there uh, on quantum theory and consciousness, and is written uh, and done a lot with, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, the British mathematician who won a Nobel Prize, Penrose, uh, Roger Penrose. He and Penrose have written together, and Penrose has written whole books about uh, intelligence and consciousness. So basically, the Society for the Scientific Study of Consciousness uh, threw them out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, for, for, they weren't conservative uh, and reductionistic enough. So uh, Stewart started his own uh, thing, a yearly conference at, at Tucson, <clears throat> now titled The Science of Consciousness. For years and years, it was called Toward the Science of Consciousness, but now you look it up on the web, it's called A Science of Consciousness. They have a nice website. They give a conference every year. They usually have over a thousand people there uh, from all over the world. Mathematicians, uh, a lot of neurologists, uh, physicists, mathematicians, uh, psychologists, you, you name it. Uh, so it's a big conference, uh, and I've been involved with that for years. But even that's a little conservative for some of my friends who are interested in things like non-dual consciousness, uh, parapsychology, non-local consciousness, and right. and so on. Uh, and these are people who do serious work uh, and uh, publish and so on. So uh, a number of us who were interested in some of these uh, more nebulous, or I should say, even less conventional topics about consciousness. Uh -huh. uh, about 10 years ago or more, started our own society, the Society for Consciousness Studies. Uh, we have over 200 members now, and we have our own conferences. We had one at Yale uh, last a year ago this past June. And you were also involved with something called the CISS, right? The California Institute of Integral Studies. Is that right? See, I can tell you a whole history of CIS. It started as a place, a home for consciousness and spirituality. Right. Our first pre yeah, our first president was recommended by Sri Aurobindo, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Uh, Oh, yeah. And uh, integral, the integral idea came from... That's really interesting because when I did come across you and this uh, institute, the word integral caught my eye because I had read Aurobindo and he uses that word a lot. So I thought there had to be some sort of connection. Yes, came from Aurobindo originally, yes. Okay. And it uh, came from a group then. That would meet on Saturday nights in San Francisco uh, and talk about philosophy. And they were all, uh, most of them had been to in India, uh -huh. as a matter of fact, to see Aurobindo or the mother. Right. Uh, one of them was Michael Murphy, co founder of Esalen. Michael's oh. quite old now, but he, he's still uh, alive. And his son, I think, is uh, running Esalen. Essel Institute. Another one was Alan Watts. Uh, there were a couple others, and uh, that's how CIS really got started. 
Then when they were ready to get a president, uh, they got a recommendation from Aurobindo himself uh, for an Indian scholar. Okay. Um, whose name I can't think of right now, but will come to me in a minute. I'm very bad with names. In fact, uh, it's a it's a problem uh, for me neurologically, I believe. But anyway, <laughs> it'll come to me. Uh, but he was our first president. Okay. And so that's been uh, quite a few decades back, and uh, he's gone, and his wife. Uh, it's gone too. She was uh, very important in San Francisco, uh, running uh, the International Center there, and I'd have to look up the exact title. But virtually everyone that came from India came there first. And what time period was this around? 70s and 80s through the 90s, okay. actually up until a few years ago. And the center is still there. Uh, and folks give talks there. Uh, regularly. One of them is uh, a faculty member at CIS by the name of Debashish Banerjee, uh-huh. uh, an Indian philosopher, dear friend of mine. I think he's in India right now. Uh, but he's written some books on Aurobindo. He's considered a leading Aurobindoan scholar. Uh, but CIS as a whole under the intermediate administration after our old president left a few years ago until we get a new one, has been running uh, on the person, the person that was vice president has been acting president and she, she's not very interested in things like consciousness. She's mainly interested in social justice, equality, social equality, those sorts of things. So the school has kind of moved in that direction. I'd say right now it's sort of uh, very much in the direction of being a kind of, uh, I would say, neo-Marxist in the sense it's uh, a lot of issues of class difference, race difference, and so on, which is fine. It's been there before. It's an old school uh, sort of, and uh, uh, many of us are hoping it'll drift back in the direction it started in with more emphasis on philosophy and spirituality. Yeah. Although those topics are still welcome there, we just don't have a program in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Center for Consciousness Studies started out uh, with uh, good funding and a lot of support from the president and from especially the Indian community uh, in the San Francisco area. Uh-huh. And uh, it seems that this was not a goal of the intermediate president. So, in fact, that was the main reason I went off a few years ago, started the Society for Consciousness Study, so we could have a place where people with these kinds of interests would be honored. We could have our own conference. The one we had at Yale uh, a year ago this past summer, uh, for example, was not a huge conference, but had <clears throat> quite a number of prominent people. Right. Deepak Chopra showed up, hung out the whole time. He had such a good time. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that's it. We're having a conference uh, online uh, later this fall. Okay. So, we're just starting to work so that how did your interest in spirituality really come about? I know you spoke earlier about how you were always curious about this whole realm of things and your interest in consciousness came out pretty early. But what really drove you to really understanding spirituality better? When I say the word spirituality, I mean 
kind of the process of looking beyond our body and our identity with our body in mind. That whole journey in your life, how did that start? Well, I developed in parallel with my interest in consciousness. Uh My interest in consciousness in a most academic way tied a lot to the fact that I was uh, involved with chaos theory. Okay. Mathematics and chaos theory and systems theory. And my book, for example, The Radiance of Being is a kind of systems theory uh, examination of uh, consciousness, but it's inspired a lot by Dzogchen Buddhist thought. So where am I with this? Uh, so they kind of developed separately, but came together over over time. Uh-huh. Uh, in the meantime, I really was very interested in finding a spiritual path. I wanted to be a Buddhist. I wanted to be a, a Taoist at first, but gave up okay. on trying to find a Taoist teacher. <laughs> Although I did practice uh, Taoist meditation for a while. And then I went to Aurobindo because at that time, uh, we're talking back in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Uh, there was very little in the U.S. Uh, we didn't have teachers here, you know, yeah. real teachers. And Aurobindo wrote in wonderful English, uh, perfectly clear. Of course, it was the language he wrote in. Um, I read his, he's got some difficult stuff, as you know. His books are huge, and yeah. some of them are difficult. Uh, I've tried to read Savitri, I don't know how many times. But, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, he has three volumes of letters. Right, right. Yeah, that he wrote to students, and these are very clear and very easy to read and, and very good instructions. And so I, uh, for about a decade, I really practiced uh, integral yoga, as he described it in, in his letters. Uh-huh. It was uh, very straightforward. I, I eventually felt I really needed a living teacher, and I was lucky to find one after that. That turned out to be Swami Rama, uh, who's gone now, but Swami Rama of the Himalayas. Uh, he had come to the U.S. He was a fairly famous guy in the 70s when he first came here because he he came to the Menninger Foundation, uh-huh. Uh, in Topeka, Kansas, where they were doing research on human potential. Uh-huh. And he could do things. He could do all the stuff. He could stop his heart. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't really stop it. He'd flutter it, but the blood would <laughs> stop. He could do all kinds of stuff. The hardest thing, he said, was he could vary the temperature of each side of his hand. That was the hardest thing he ever did. And, right. and it's because the blood flow in the hand doesn't really allow for that but he could do all that stuff and and eventually i ended up with him wow Uh, and i expected him to teach me all kinds of wonderful tricks and what he said is serve others (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well what about the advanced practice he said that is the advanced practice (laughs) so i never learned any tricks from him but he was a uh, traditional he he came from like a tradition, right? He came from like a lineage of yogis per se, right? Yes, uh, it, it's pretty much all in the Yoga Sutras because yeah. he was really a meditation teacher and he, uh, he emphasized right behavior and he was very interested in medical practice. He started a medical center. 
Well, actually, he left when he left the U.S. He started a major, uh, I would say major, but a significant hospital in a very poor area in India, and developed it and uh, brought in physicians. You know, he was very interested in health, but we can talk about that. But what he was for me, uh, and folks like me, he was a meditation teacher. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's been my practice ever since. Uh, and by the time I had done it long enough and had enough time with him and uh, at the Himalayan Institute when he was there personally, I, I didn't feel like I needed another one. I, you know, you got the real thing. And I think in Indian tradition, they, you still got them. <laughs> uh, even if they've gone off to the Maha Samadhi, as they say. Uh, so that's, that was a separate interest of mine, although I tried to bring bring them together. And in my books, especially The Radiance of Being, I try to talk about uh, consciousness in the context of spirituality. Yeah. But uh, I still, I claim to be the world, the world's only generalist in consciousness studies because I started the society. I've invited a lot of people. We have over 200 people of every ilk. Uh, it's not a real highbrow society. There are a lot more prominent uh, neurologists and philosophers at the major Eastern universities like Yale and uh, Columbia and so on that go to the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Tucson conference, but we have a good one. And uh, I know a lot of people and we, we get together and we have our own conferences. So uh, the Society for Consciousness Studies is sort of the hub. Right. Speaking of consciousness, which is a large chunk of your research and journey in the many studies that you've done, you've defined it um, generally as the foundation of all experience, the ground of all experience. What do you mean by that? What is consciousness to you? Because a lot, you know, the word is thrown around a lot and people use it differently. What do you define consciousness as? Yeah, I had a long conversation about that this morning. Uh-huh. There are different views, of course, and one of them is uh, shows up in Indian philosophy in which uh-huh. consciousness uh, is used in translations uh, as something very similar to Brahman, Brahman or uh, actually energy or Shakti or something like that it's more associated with the energy Mm -hmm. and the kind of living essence but for western philosophy uh i like the uh, basic definition that most philosophers use nowadays and that's what it is like what is what's it like to be a you know the famous article uh what is it like to be a bat the famous article uh, you can find it easily and the author has been about 20 years. What's it like to be a bat? Well, uh, for a brown bat, uh, a living brown bat must be like something. We don't know what it's like, but it must be like something. Uh, if you've got a dog, it must be like something to be the dog. But what's it like to be a baseball bat, see? Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably not like anything. <laughs> so consciousness is like, it's like something. It's like something to eat an apple. It's like something to 
uh, drink orange juice, it's like something to watch a movie, it's like something to have a stomach ache. Uh, that's what most philosophers nowadays in the West mean. It's, it's like something. It's just, it's, it's, uh, William James used the term experience, but he didn't like the word consciousness because people try to make it into something. Right. Uh, and it's not a thing. So he preferred the word experience. So that's sort of my view of uh, mm -hmm. consciousness. One of the things that's really interesting is how vast the study of consciousness has gone in the recent years, whether it be studying the hard problem of consciousness, whether it be studying um, the effects and impact of meditation on an individual, whether it be the larger understanding of the universe based on consciousness some people call it you know relatable to quantum physics um, some people also look into animal consciousness one of the major things is also as ai and robots you know have become more and more advanced over the years a lot of people are looking into is consciousness existent in robots and artificial intelligence today based on how advanced it's gotten what are your thoughts on the ai and consciousness discussion specifically well that's a big question and nobody knows uh, i personally am old-fashioned and i don't think robots are conscious i don't care how smart they are <laughs> but uh everybody doesn't agree with that uh i have a dear friend by the name of uh Ben Gertzel, who designed, really designed the brain for Sophia. Are you familiar with Sophia the robot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was designed to look like Sophia Loren. Is <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he designed the brain, and I've talked to him about it. He says, well, I don't know. They act like they're conscious, so are they or not? I don't know. So, and other people say, well, uh, maybe they're not conscious, but maybe a uh, immaterial spirit can possess them and so they become conscious uh, that's an interesting discussion and there are books out on machine consciousness and so on i find them fascinating what is your take i don't know what to say to that yeah i think they're like an upgraded toaster i don't think they're conscious but <laughs> uh, i don't know i could be wrong Maybe yeah. if they get smart enough. Well, one of the things I saw about you and your viewpoint on how consciousness plays a role in the universe and in our existence uh, is that you follow or you, you abide more closely towards the Samkhya metaphysical um, viewpoint. Is that correct? You find that ancient um, Indian school of thought called Samkhya most suitable or yes that makes most sense yeah. to you i do Yankaya. but there is this distinction between uh purusha and prakriti right and purusha is pure consciousness and prakriti is the world process well i would put the robot in the prakriti right is part of the world process uh and uh Consciousness is something else. I don't see it as, as it, it being material at all. Do you find that people and researchers who are deeply studying um, the realm of consciousness, 
both neurologically and psychologically, are slowly accepting the spiritual aspect of it that you're speaking of, where there's potential, or there's the idea, and there's that possibility that maybe consciousness is not something that is mind-body, that is non-material, but that could be something beyond that. Do you find people accepting that? Yeah. I would say the majority of brain scientists and neurologists are still pretty much hard-nosed materialists. Uh, but it's getting harder and harder to hold that position with all the data we have about out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, and on and on. So here's Stuart Hameroff, for example, yeah. uh, leading quantum theorist. He thinks uh, consciousness arises from computational problem processes in neural tubules uh, way down at the bottom of the you know, micro level of the brain. Yet he, I've met him at uh, uh, conferences on out of the body near death experiences. Uh -huh. And he thinks that it may be possible uh, that consciousness continues outside the physical brain somehow in a sort of quantum matrix. Uh -huh. And he's too smarter than I am. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's a mathematical quantum process. He sees a structure that is a possibility could go beyond the physical brain. Uh, and then, you know, Chalmers has become a panpsychist. So figure that out. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Um, panpsychism. I believe you also abide by that worldview. What does that exactly mean? Yeah, consciousness for a panpsychist is all over the place. Yeah. And some of the, you know, some of the leading quantum physicists and others are, are, are or were panpsychists. Uh, even, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, one of the leading uh, early quantum physicists thought that, uh, and there are more than one that think atomic particles and quantum particles have a kind of what they call proto-consciousness. Okay. It's not really consciousness like you and I have, but it's sort of the ground for consciousness. I, I can't really explain this in any detail. But there's so many problems with trying to be a materialist these days. It's sort of like Bertrand Russell said once. He said, I would be a materialist if there was any evidence for it. <laughs> he was a sarcastic guy, but very bright. And uh, so basically, you can find that nice talk by Chalmers on the web about this. He's about five years old. And he says that. Uh, uh, panpsychism has as much support as anything that consciousness is uh, widely uh, distributed through and, and perhaps a fundamental feature of the cosmos. Uh -huh. the, the big challenge for the panpsychism is not so much the problem of the fact that uh, you think consciousness is everywhere and to some extent in everything, but how does it get stuck in you as an individual so that it feels like you are separate from other things and you have this conscious mind that's separate and, and unique? That's huh. the problem for pain and psychic. I mean, consciousness is everywhere and in everything. 
why don't you experience it that way? Uh -huh. Unless you're a mystic, you probably don't. But panpsychism was considered at the big Tucson conferences where everybody met. Uh, once in a while, there'd be a little paper. I nobody took it seriously. And within the last three or four years, it's come to the front as a major topic of discussion. Okay. Uh, and much more respected than it used to be. I guess I'm a panpsychist, but I still don't know how it works out that I feel like I'm a separate person from everything else. You know, I feel sometimes that just consciousness or the state of being is so obvious and it's so taken for granted sometimes that that's the reason why we don't realize it. It's like some, you know, those things that are under our nose and it's right there. Um, but because we just don't notice it and we don't give it attention, um, awareness isn't given awareness. Um, that is what the problem is sometimes. So how would you then explain to a common man that the consciousness, the state of being that they're experiencing since they were born is something special and that it's something that we need to anchor our attention towards? That's a good question. Yeah. I'm going to be doing a workshop with a lady from Greece uh, next week who teaches consciousness to grade school children. I don't know exactly how she does it. I can't really answer that. <laughs> I think children are, we know that children, even in grade school, are able to get a hold of some pretty profound philosophical ideas and kick them around. Uh, I think uh, you can talk about uh, going back to this, what is it like to be? Uh, in fact, uh, I have an article here somewhere. I could probably give you the title. You can find it online where I talk about this. Uh, it will take me a minute to fish for it. Uh, hold on. Well, never mind. But uh, unless you want to wait while I look. But basically, you can talk about what's, what's it like to be a dog? If they've got a dog, what's it like to be a cat? Uh, what's it like? Uh, is it like anything to be an insect, for example, or a tree? Yeah. You know, you can bring those questions up. Now, I don't know how old a child has to be before they can get into it very deep, because uh, I think really young children, two, three, four years old, I'm not sure they can really even understand the idea. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good bit of psychology about how uh, old children had to be before they can perceive anything outside of themselves or see another perspective, for example. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. So I don't know until a child's old enough to understand that somebody else is seeing things from a different perspective, uh, how far you can get with that. But that's a good entree. Uh, you can talk about being awake. That's a sort of medical mm. approach. You know, somebody's knocked in the head in an accident. And they said, well, he's awake. Is he conscious? Does he know his name? Can he move his hand when we ask him? They just want to know if he's awake. Right. So that's a real fundamental uh, medical approach to consciousness. Nothing philosophical about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can get into that with kids. 
I'm trying to remember what that area is called. Um, I don't remember, but uh, it's not hard to yeah. find. You can Google it out. Yeah. Speaking of the hard problem of consciousness, which has become more and more popular, questioning where consciousness comes from, what is the source, we see a larger opinion in that it's either a process within the brain, it's an effect, it is a neuron. Um, what makes you think, and, and as you stated earlier, your opinion is that it is not part of the brain, why do you believe that? Uh, given the situation in the world today, uh -huh. you know, this is what I would call, as a psychologist, a developmental issue. Okay. How mature do you have to be mentally to actually understand that other people have feelings and to be able to empathize with that? There's a whole business about that uh, in... Uh, in developmental psychology, uh, where children first begin to appreciate that other people and their parents, the theory of mind is called, develop what's called a theory of mind, that when you look at me, you understand that I have a mind of my own and see the world a little differently. Uh, that's a developmental process, and real young children don't have it. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually, if you keep growing, you, you're able to empathize and get a sense for uh, all the people in your community. Uh -huh. And now, uh, whatever your community is, it may be your religious community. So that's still quite limited in a world in which we're all connected. But uh, there's a stage in which people identify with uh, their religious group or whatever it is. Uh, and then as you continue to grow, uh, if you do, then you begin to empathize with uh, humanity or maybe even in Buddhist terms, all of life. So that's a growth process. And uh, all you have to do is turn on the news and you'll see that everybody's not got it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, they don't understand other people. They have no empathy. Well, I, if you don't mind my saying so, we seem to have a president doesn't have it mm -hmm. uh, stuff he does with immigrants you just can't do with other human beings if you have any compassion in any sense for what it must be like to be them uh, that's a characteristic of what's called a narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. a fundamental personality dysfunction right. unfortunately right uh, yeah so I don't know that I answered your question but I think uh, it's a developmental question. Right. And if you can help children uh, develop this, you're helping them move along and develop. Going off that, though, um, it seems like what you're saying is that an individual who is more aware of his awareness, which again feels weird saying, probably the better way of saying is one who is aware of consciousness existing within him or her, that individual would turn out to be a more compassionate person do you agree with that and how so i think unless you have a what's called a theory of mind and you see other people as having living in their own world having intentions and purposes and feelings of their own uh it's hard to have uh, any kind of compassion for them they're just objects 
And that's the problem with uh, a very low level of development or personality disorders that never develop. Are you familiar with the Rouge test? I don't think so. uh, sometimes referred to as the mirror test. Well, you know, rouge is red lipstick. They put rouge on a child's nose and put them in front of a mirror. Uh-huh. And until they're a couple, two and a half years old or maybe three, they don't recognize they're looking at themselves. Now, the test is that they'll wipe their nose off if they if they recognize that this image is themselves. Right. You can do this with a lot of different animals. Some primates will recognize it themselves and some won't. Uh, dolphins, uh, for example, and orcas are very good at it. Uh, you can go through the whole animal kingdom and divide them in terms of which ones can pass the mirror test. Yeah. Some birds can. Uh, well, if you can pass the mirror test, then you at least know have some sense of uh, that you're you are a person, and it's I can't tell exactly how it's related to consciousness, but you have to have some sense that you're a conscious person and you're looking at yourself. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of related in a sort of maybe distant way, but I think uh, makes some sense in context of uh, theory of mind. Yeah. Here's a, person that's with another mind well it's my mind what what the heck <laughs> now this may get a little more technical in terms of this whole talk but do you see consciousness as most or some uh indian scriptures describe it as as like a vast ocean and each individual's individual consciousness or subjective consciousness is like a droplet in that ocean that eventually it merges into or do you see at do you see it as each individual has his own consciousness which is different from my consciousness which is different from your consciousness how do you view it yeah i think they're both i think they're both true you develop the awareness uh that many uh, buddhists and uh, uh, and uh, Indian philosophers and Indian practitioners have, or even if you don't, I think uh, that many people are aware of this sort of ground consciousness uh-huh. th- that permeates everything and, and that you're, you can be aware of. But that's not the same thing as individual, being a unique individual. So I think they're both true. Have you been uh-huh. able to... Um prove these things, prove these ideas and thoughts of consciousness being like the foreground of all reality. I know it sounds like, of course, you can't prove these things, but many people have had subjective um, experiences. Do you feel like you've been able to somehow grasp it, whether it is through your own experience as a meditator or even as as someone who has researched a lot in this field and done many studies in this field has that helped you in getting a better grasp and proving it in some way scientifically to yourself right well this is not something you can really get a hold of uh very well in a uh, traditional uh research way and that's one of the reasons it's been difficult to get it accepted 
in in conservative communities. Uh, it's something you learn through inside self-examination, uh, sharing your insights with other people. Uh, there are these things like the Ruse test and theory of mind you can test in the laboratory. Uh, but when you really get down to it, consciousness, it's a subjective business. So it maybe it's more in the realm of philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't make any apologies for not knowing how to test it in the laboratory because I think it's in the realm of things that you can't get under a, you know, under a microscope. Yeah. Uh, you have to examine it. But we do have uh, a lot of validation through, uh, Different people having different, similar experiences, sharing their experiences, uh, sharing their insights, and uh, uh, validating each other in that regard. And uh, when you really get into uh, uh, subjective experiences with consciousness, there's a kind of self-validating feature. Yeah. In fact, this is like, I don't remember my Indian philosophy that well today, but there is a kind of sense of validity that comes with it, that you can't really doubt your experience, uh -huh. uh, you, that you, sense of reality, and, and that's it. So the people say, well, it's philosophy then, I, that maybe it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> yeah, um, you spoke uh, Yeah, like I live through behaviorism. I've had enough of it, frankly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So we spoke on how relevant consciousness is when it comes to modern technology and artificial intelligence. We spoke on how relevant consciousness studies is when it comes to understanding each other and being more compassionate to one another. Another thing that really comes to mind when it comes to studying and really diving into our own awareness is what we call mental health. You know, our especially my generation faces that more and more, whether it come whether it be anxiety or depression or some sort of stress, these issues have become more and more relevant and the cause of a lot of other social, economic, political, and even just intrinsic issues that day to day individuals face, especially even right now during a pandemic. How important do you think understanding our own consciousness, diving into our own awareness. How important are these things when it comes to mental health? It's the most important thing in the world. <laughs> Why do you say that? Self-realization, understanding yourself, all the evidence says that if you work on these kinds of things, uh, and there's a lot of empirical evidence for that. I mean, the effect of meditation on the mind, uh, the effect of uh, personal growth on other people. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Where, let's see, I should back up a little. I think these kinds of uh, developments and people being involved with them uh, is our, probably our best hope for the future frankly, mm -hmm. people being more aware of not only themselves, because if you're deeply aware of yourself, you'll be compassionate about other people, but aware of your relationships to other people, 
If you meditate, you do these things, you become more and more aware of how we're connected person to person on some kind of subtle level. Uh, I can't put my finger on, but uh, we're all in it together and you get a sense of that. Uh, so yeah, I think this is very important and I think the younger generation is, uh, I have all the hopes for them because I think it's very important. Uh-huh. You know, there's very few people like you who have really studied consciousness the way you have. And with that being said, how has both your study and your research on the professional end, as well as your own personal practice of meditation and spirituality, helped you and how has it shaped you today? Well, it's uh, professionally, it's been a fascinating, continues to be a fascinating trip. Uh -huh. uh, it's, uh, it's what I've been most interested in, so I'm blessed to be able to be uh, involved with it, and I spend a lot of time uh, nowadays helping other people publish. I have uh -huh. uh, many doctoral students, and I, uh, I work with them to help them publish, to help them get started. I spend a lot more time doing that now than i doing my own work anymore. Uh, so that's rewarding. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's also an intellectual adventure. Uh -huh. I was one of the, uh, founders of chaos theory and psychology, a mathematical model, basically. And that was a lot of fun. It was stuff that was just fun to do. I still do some of it. Uh, but in terms of personal spiritual work, uh, wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, I'm 78 years old. Life seems rich to me. Uh, a lot of old men my age wake up really depressed every day and then they die <laughs> uh, because their life is meaningless and uh, to them. And so the, doing the spiritual work is what really enlivens your life. I, life, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, doing deep meditation is a way to... Uh, go to the well of life in a sense and experience it uh, in a deep way that you can't, I don't know any other way to do it. Hmm. What's like the biggest question or the biggest issue for you that you want to still tackle when it comes to this realm of studies, um, both at an individual level, something that bothers you or something that you want to be able to tackle and at a worldview level what you think is something that society and people should generally be either more aware of or be able to answer yeah well i think understanding consciousness uh as it is experienced by us is a very important understanding ourselves and understanding our relationships with other people um and to me, it's very important to me personally <clears throat> to help people uh, fulfill their lives by exploring these ideas that would ultimately lead to uh, right behavior, to compassion for other people. I mean, here I am talking to you. You're a young guy. I'm not getting a publication out of this. Uh, what I'm getting out of this is feeling that I'm perhaps helping you a little in your journey. 
Mm. And that's very rewarding to me at my age if I can do something for younger that's people kind. or anyone who's honestly on some kind of personal path. Yeah. And I don't think it's my business to tell them what that path should be because people know what they need. Uh-huh. I guess another side to that question was um, more specifically when it comes to what modern psychologists and neurologists and what have you are studying when it comes to this realm of consciousness and its impact on the human mind and so on and so forth. What do you think is the most pressing questions that need to be answered? I can't answer that because there's so many questions. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of research going on right now has been on EEG patterns in uh, different states of consciousness and how these influence people. Yeah. So just in a laboratory way, that's very important work. I just read a study this morning that uh, was just published that shows that uh, folks that meditate uh, regularly uh, have better concentration, uh, are able to read material with better uh, recollection and so on. So that's uh, that's important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I really have an answer because I think there's so many. So many, yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking again of the modern generation of youth that are facing this whirlwind of countless social issues and political issues and healthcare issues and economic struggles, what is your tip or your two cents to them? Um, or what is something that you tell your own students when it comes to understanding human awareness or understanding this world itself? Well, follow your own uh, sense of what is the right thing for you to do uh -huh. and uh, follow a path that leads you to personal growth uh -huh. because that will open other paths for you. When I was young, I mean, my prayer was always about growth, uh -huh. <laughs> becoming more a uh, richer person than I was at the time. And that's that's kind of what I've done. Uh, and it's opened up so many different uh, possibilities for me. Uh -huh. I think each of us has to find our own, our own calling. And I think you can do that. I mean, I think you follow your heart, follow yeah. your sense of what your destiny uh, is uh, intended to be. Uh -huh. And... Uh, most spiritual practices uh, ultimately lead to that. Yeah. Through, yeah, through meditation, through thought, being uh, conscious of your own feelings, even dreams are important for the. Going back to something you've studied as well, and what you can what I've seen in your research is um, your understanding and your look or your critique at William James and his philosophy and his way of looking at the world. Um, for example, in his Varieties of Religious Experience, he speaks about mysticism and spiritual experiences in a very scientific way. And he gives it a pretty um, objective look at it without taking sides as much as possible. And then eventually does give his own take on it. It seemed like he was very open-minded um, back then as well. Do you see that same sense of open-mindedness and what is your take on his sort of critique? Well, it was a different world for James, but uh, 
his interest in mysticism was very much like our own interest today in consciousness. Hmm. In fact, he was very interesting. You know, he uh, <laughs> he experimented with psychedelic drugs uh -huh. at the time. Uh, ether, I guess, was the common one. They would breathe the uh, laughing gas. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the re uh, Friday's religious experience, he talks about all the different states of consciousness that are just, he says, they're just on the other side of the veil. Yeah. Light touch takes you to them. Uh, I think that he had a perspective about what used to be called mysticism that is very uh, familiar nowadays to those of us who talk about consciousness and meditation and Eastern thought. He was uh, not an Eastern scholar, but he was a friend of uh, one of the great yogis uh, that traveled in the U.S. at the time. I'm trying to remember his name. Yeah. I believe so. There are pictures of them standing together. Uh -huh. uh, so he was quite interested in this, and I think it uh, fits perfectly well with his uh, few other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've also found Indian philosophy to be very influential in your own personal journey. Is that right? It's wonderful. But, of course, India is so filled with so many. I mean, there's everything from... Uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, atheists to uh, yeah, raving mystics to everything else, but the really some of the profound work I used to teach the Bhagavad Gita. I used to say uh, that if I only had one book that I had to keep for the rest of my life, that would be it. Oh. I thought there was more wisdom in the uh, Bhagavad Gita than any other book I could think of. Well, what was so inspiring or impactful about the Bhagavad Gita for you personally? It well, it lays out the major yogic paths, which to me are the major life paths. Uh, I haven't thought about it in a while. I'm a little tired right now, so my brain's not working real well. But one is the path of service. One is the path of meditation. And the third one is the path of uh, worship. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the three, bhakti, uh, meditation, and jnana, essentially. Uh, path of wisdom. So it lays these out uh, in a balanced kind of way that's uh, very understandable. I just think it's uh, rich with uh, with uh, wisdom. I mean, I had to go back and look at it again because I don't teach any of those courses I used to use it in. Right. But I have many uh, translations. The one I really like is the Isherwood. Uh, which is not as good a translation as the Aurobindo translation, but Christopher Isherwood was a Hollywood screenwriter, and he was part of the L.A. group uh, that were involved in yoga mm -hmm. and spirituality. Obvious Huxley was another, and they had a, uh, a Swami, I've forgotten his name there. Uh, the, the group is still, I mean, the, the, that area in... Uh, the temple or whatever it is, it, it's still yeah. in LA. I've, I've been there, but uh, uh, but Isherwood had a gift for language, and he's the one that came up with the phrase "brighter than a thousand suns." If oh. you heard, right, right. Uh, that's his phrase. It's not in any of the others. It's very poetic. Uh, it was used by Oppenheimer, who was the head of the 
Manhattan Project to refer yeah. to the first bomb. Right, right. Yeah, brighter than a thousand suns. But that came from Israel. This came from the Bank of Lagida. I guess we could keep going on and on about this subject matter. Um, but yeah. what I wanted to ask you finally was what is the driving force for you? What is that mantra or the push that keeps you going to continue to learn and study consciousness and awareness at both a scholarly and a you know personal spiritual level what is that driving force for you well it's uh, both an intellectual uh, entertainment i'm absolutely fascinated by the problems consciousness presents you've presented several of them yourself the hard problem for example uh, and at the same time it's uh, personally very relevant to me as a yogic uh, traditional yogic practitioner yeah. uh, in terms of meditation and uh, my lifestyle. So I consider myself a, a yogic practitioner. Uh, yeah. So it, it it's, uh, helps lead to a uh, satisfying lifestyle. Mm. Wow, that was really beautiful and insightful. Um, thank you again for taking out your time and speaking with us. Pleasure to meet you. It was very inspiring, and thank you again. We hope this episode was insightful for you as it was for us. For more content like this, check out rootsmedia.org and keep listening to the Philosophy of Now podcast.